One lesson is that most meaningfully hard, big global problems and challenges don't get solved without sacrifice. From Chicago Studies and the Program on the Global Environment at the University of Chicago, this is Hidden Gems, Quarantine Edition. Where we discuss the implications of shelter in place by bringing special guests, student voices, and feel-good features from our homes to yours. I'm Kimika. I'm Julia. And I'm Sophia. And in this episode, we consider how our collective response to the coronavirus can inform how we address the climate crisis. As the movement to flatten the curve for the coronavirus gains popular understanding, some climate change activists have also latched onto the phrase. However, in their case, flatten the curve refers to slowing carbon emissions growth in order to prevent catastrophic climate change. Just as nations around the world have activated extreme measures to slow the spread of coronavirus, climate experts and environmentalists say, we need to radically reform our political, economic, energy, and food systems to meet the challenge of climate change. We chat with Pat Brown, the CEO of Impossible Foods, a company founded with the explicit mission to save meat and earth. We ask, what parallels can we draw between social change for public health versus the environment? And how can innovation in the food industry, especially with meat production, mitigate our environmental impacts? My name is Pat Brown. I am the CEO and founder of Impossible Foods. So Pat, what does saving meat have to do with saving the earth? The biggest environmental threat that humans have ever faced is the catastrophic impact of the use of animals in the food technology. Not only is it a huge contributor to greenhouse gas emissions and by far the biggest source of water pollution and consumption, the land footprint of land-based animal agriculture is about 45% of the entire land surface of Earth. So back in 2011, you decided to step back from your academic career to work full-time developing a new plant-based meat product. Why the Impossible Burger? There's many reasons why it's a good choice. One is the beef industry is by far the most destructive from an environmental standpoint. So we wanted to maximize our mission impact. It's also the single most popular kind of meat in the U.S., so, you know, if we're going to choose a product to launch with, I think that all else being equal, that's, that's a plus. And it's iconic. So one of the big challenges we wanted to address as efficiently as possible is there's a deeply held suspicion among current meat consumers that anything made from plants will suck. If you made chicken, people just feel like, well, you know, you could, you could take anything and call it chicken and a lot of people would, would believe you. But um, a burger is a higher bar. So the Impossible Burger is sending consumers the message that delicious meat can come from plants. What is it that makes this message so compelling? People don't want to think about where their meat comes from. They desperately don't want to think about it. And we have tons of data on this from years. Most meat lovers, overwhelming majority, like high 90% of them, if you ask them, they don't like how their meat is made. They like their meat. They like how it tastes. They like that it's got a lot of protein and iron. The fact that it's made in a slaughterhouse is not appealing to them, but they just put it out of their mind because the, 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 the taste and the nutrition, you know, the protein and stuff like that, whatever the things they value. But it's not just meat lovers who don't want to consider the environmental and ethical consequences of their meat. As Pat Brown pointed out, it's also the environmentalists. 
I went to the Paris Climate Conference, uh, and one thing that's, and I was the only one there was talking about, um, you know, animal agriculture as a climate issue. But other people there knew it was an issue. That was the thing. But they didn't think it was solvable. Um, and the reason I think they didn't think it was solvable because they all had had meat for dinner, okay? And these are people that that they've devoted their whole lives to this issue, okay? So there's no question about they care about it. and. And they understand the impact of their food choices. So education isn't the problem. It's that even with those things, it's very hard to change established behavior patterns. And particularly when it's something that gives you such rewards as eating foods that you love. That makes sense. Many people are really attached to the food they grew up with, or they have positive memories around a certain food. I know I have some comfort foods, like banana bread and mac and cheese, that I'm attached to, so I can see how asking people to give up meat completely wouldn't be effective. It's not just individuals like us who are making the choice to eat burgers and drive cars. Businesses and institutions have a disproportionately large environmental footprint, so they have to be part of a solution. Impossible Foods is an example of a company that is taking on this responsibility by creating an alternative to traditional meat. So how did Impossible Foods manage to convince meat eaters, hundreds of thousands of them nationwide, to switch to meat made from plants? 90% of it is make an awesome product that is not the product that you want, it's the product that meat consumers want. The Impossible Foods strategy is trying to depend as little as possible on people having to make sacrifices or, or make any concerted activities. It's focused on just winning over individual consumers and so forth. Another thing that I think is if we get enough penetration, like enough, enough consumers are really deciding that they can do just fine now on a plant-based diet because there are things that satisfy their craving for meat and stuff like that. I'm, I'm wondering, I don't know whether it's true. It's like you change your behavior first and then you change the way you think about the problem. Okay, that's a fascinating idea. When we normally talk about social change, the conversation seems to start with altering mindsets before you can get people to change their behavior. But Pat is suggesting that in some cases, behavior change can actually lead to new ways of thinking about the problem. So how does this work with Impossible Burger? Where I think it helps us is if people buy an Impossible Burger instead of a cow burger, and we reinforce that, by saying, you know what, you just did that, and good for you, and here's the benefit for the world and for the environment. If you buy, if you eat one quarter pound Impossible Burger instead of a cow burger, that's basically like flying 22 less miles in a passenger jet, you know? So reminding people that their choice is also good for the environment actually motivates them to do it again. This nudge reinforces the behavior by making people more conscious of their environmental footprint. You know what, Julia? That reminds me of Richard Thaler said about choice architecture. He's a Nobel Prize-winning behavioral economist whose big idea is that changing how choices are presented can nudge us toward decisions that benefit people and even the planet. Nudging could help encourage sustainable behaviors. For example, what if we nudge people to buy eco-friendly products by placing them at eye level on the shelf? Or when you crank up the AC on a hot day, what if your thermostat said, this is going to cost you $10 and also contribute X amount of carbon emissions? Oh, I love that idea, Sophia. Thanks. It was actually Richard's. But I think it's also important to note that there really isn't a silver bullet when it comes to tackling climate change. The public health crisis has also taught us that global problems require 
both individual behavior changes and conscious collective action. But boy, would it be made easier, and just in general, the you know climate issues, if people could recognize this problem is real, which COVID had this very good wake up, and that means that these things that, you know, three months ago we would have never cooperated with, you know, we're saying no, we got to do this, even though it's hard. I'm hoping that some of that lesson will stick, because there's lots of big problems in the world. We're working on some very big ones that if we really want to make fast progress um, and in order for us to solve it you know we have to do some things that will be hard and we have to you know be a functional community. COVID-19 is a wake-up call in the sense that it has exposed structural problems that leave vulnerable people and the planet at risk so we can use this opportunity to evaluate what's working and what's not. And the meat industry is one of many industries that has received increased scrutiny in light of the crisis. And one of the other things about the COVID epidemic that I think will be interesting for us is that we've heard the word slaughterhouse about a thousand times more in the past month than in the previous 10 years. And people are actually kind of being exposed to it and thinking, you know, thinking about something that they really don't like thinking about. The only people who work in a slaughterhouse are basically recent immigrants, many of them undocumented, for whom it's the only job available. Fox News explains that meatpacking plants are coronavirus risk zones because it's difficult for workers to maintain six feet of distance on the processing floor. And the physical labor means that often they're breathing heavily while hauling cuts of meat, possibly spreading virus particles in the cold air. Almost 5,000 meatpacking workers across 19 states had tested positive for the virus as of April 27th, according to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. At least 20 workers have died, and local news outlets have reported that outbreaks continue to spread at some meatpacking plants since then. And yet the Trump administration's recent use of the Defense Production Act to compel meat and poultry producers to stay open despite COVID-19 risks reminds us how the status quo is preserved even when it isn't working for people or the planet. People uh, are very wedded to the foods that they prefer. For most, I would say for a large fraction of people in the world, the pleasure that they get from eating the foods they love is a huge part of the pleasure of life. And it's just, it's unreasonable to think you can ask them to to give that up. And that defined the problem very crisply for me, which is that it's a technology problem. The problem is that we're using prehistoric technology that's the most inefficient technology at any scale around, hasn't improved in a thousand years fundamentally in its efficiency to produce this this category of foods for which there's, there's huge global demand. And there's no reason we ought not to be able to produce the same foods with the same quality or greater quality vastly more efficiently by using, um, by basically turning plants directly into these foods as opposed to, you know, with 3% efficiency, um, as is the case with beef. This industry certainly seems ripe for disruption. So how is Impossible Foods trying to bring innovation to the beef industry? Basically, the the thing is that if you do the thought experiment, if we have products that do a better job of delivering what the target consumer wants in terms of deliciousness, nutritional value, affordability, convenience, and so forth, which is the number one focus, then it's our game to lose. Ultimately, our success or failure hinges on the R&D team continuing to innovate and to work on making the best 
product and serving the target customer and then making it better the next day. Similarly, with COVID-19 and climate change, our success or failure depends on our ability not only to flatten the curve, but also to research and develop effective responses to crisis. For coronavirus, that means accurate, widespread testing, effective treatment, and a vaccine. For climate change, current technological advances can help us transition our way of life in everything, from clean energy to food production and more. Individuals and institutions will need to work on solutions that are both preventive and adaptive. Solutions to prevent the crisis from getting worse. And solutions that help us not just get back to normal, but actually build a better way forward and out of the crisis. So we asked Pat Brown, what does our collective response to the current public health crisis reveal about how we are addressing or can address climate change? I think the thing about COVID, the thing that makes it a little different than climate is that the connections between um, the choices you make and climate change are very, are so indirect. And whereas it's easy to understand that if you have a contagious disease, that the logic for social distancing and you know, wearing a mask and improving your hand washing techniques and stuff like that, you know, it's so directly connected. As Pat Brown points out, being able to see a direct connection between our individual actions and the health of the community is one of the key distinctions between the pandemic and climate change. It's been hard for individuals to connect how such seemingly small choices in the grocery store, like buying milk or meat, contribute to global warming and rising sea levels. With climate change, Pat Brown notes that connecting the dots is much, much harder. It's much more of an abstract concept for people. If the West Antarctic glacier collapses into the ocean, I think that would be a wake-up call for people when they suddenly find themselves under 10 feet of water. In many parts of the world, climate change is already affecting people's quality of lives and daily experiences. But to make the concept less abstract for people who might not see the connection, Perhaps we need to change the rhetoric around environmentalism. It's about saving us and saving the planet. That's right. We, we have to make it personal and remind people that when the community is better off, so are they. Actually, the movement to flatten the curve for coronavirus has done that really well. I think whether deliberately or not, communication about COVID has, has convinced people that the reason that they should practice social isolation and and hygiene and masks and stuff like that is uh, to protect themselves. Whereas actually the reason that you're doing this, the chance of you getting infected is minimal. But if everybody practices good public health practices, the transmission in the community will go down. Your, your, your chance of being infected if you, you know, uh, have a conversation with someone who's carrying the virus is very, very low. But if everybody's doing it, some of them will get infected and it will continue to cascade and then it's a problem for all of us. But that's too abstract. So it seems to me that there are a couple of takeaways from our conversation with Pat Brown. First, with new technology and advances like clean energy, electric vehicles, and of course, plant-based meats, the new alternatives can be better and safer than old ones. But to inspire people to switch, we need to draw clearer connections between the environmental consequences of our actions 
and our individual and collective long-term well-being. Finally, climate change is going to require that we make sacrifices and adapt to new ways of life through a just and inclusive transition. That means we need to identify and support communities that bear job losses and are at risk for being left behind in the transition. The current moment has brought some of these disparities to light and taught us we are capable of working together to address global problems, even if our efforts are imperfect. I think that might be a, a, a really good lesson for people that, you know, we can solve these, these really, really, really big problems by working together and making sacrifices and feel good about it and come out the other end better off. And I don't know if any of that lesson sticks, I think that'll be a really positive thing. And while we're staying at home, millions of frontline workers are helping to deliver food, essentials, and medical care to people around the world. This week, we would like to thank grocery store employees and truck drivers for helping to deliver tasty products like the Impossible Burger to supermarkets and food shops around the country. And thank you for listening to our podcast. You can visit our website at uchicagohiddengems.com to view accompanying images, to find source information for our music and sound effects, and to subscribe to upcoming episodes. This podcast is sponsored by the Program on the Global Environment and Chicago Studies at the University of Chicago. This has been Hidden Gems.